I'm Anna Barnard. And I'm Maria Ramsey. And you're listening to Never Wear Boring Socks. Welcome back to a very special episode of Never Wear Boring Socks. We have for you today episode 30, which means it's a guest episode. Oh. Very exciting. So today's guest is writer, crafter, and author of the just-released book on life and crafting, The Curse of the Boyfriend Sweater, and her name is Alana Oaken. And Alana and I sang in choir together in college, which is how I know her. And I always thought she was a very cool person. And then when I saw recently that she had written a book about her life as a young adult through the lens of crafting, I decided we needed to have her on our show where we often talk about young adulthood and creativity. Plus, as a crafter, she even makes her own socks, which is very unboring. Indeed. You can find Alana's work on Racked, BuzzFeed, NPR, Apartment Therapy, The Hairpin, and The Billfold, and she's also appeared on Good Morning America and The Today Show. And we had a really fascinating conversation with her about crafting, writing, getting paid to do creative work, and much more. So we really hope that you enjoy listening to it, and without further ado, here is our conversation with her. Anna, what socks are you wearing today? I am wearing a pair of fuzzy socks, and they are white, and they have red polka dots on them. And I wore these because I had a long day yesterday, and I wanted to feel nice and cozy this morning. So that's why I chose these socks. Nice. Yeah. What socks are you wearing, Maria? I'm wearing my Soulmate socks, which is a brand we've talked about in a previous episode. And I chose these because I don't have any actually handmade socks, but I feel like these are the closest thing I have to looking like handmade socks, which seemed appropriate since our special guest today is Alana Oaken, who is a crafter who also just wrote a book about crafting. So that seemed like the right pair of socks for today. So welcome, Alana. Thank you guys so much for having me. And now you're making me feel bad about my sock choice because I'm realizing I probably <laughs> should have worn socks that I made in honor of the theme, but I did not. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It happens. Yeah. I'm actually wearing gym socks. Um, I went to the gym for the first time in like redacted amount of time this morning and I've just been feeling really good <laughs> about it. So I wanted to brag about it to you guys and maybe encourage <laughs> myself to go more in the future. Sounds nice. good. Yeah. To start off, Alana, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What are you up to these days? What's your story? I am a writer and editor and crafter. I live in Brooklyn um, and am a graduate of Vassar College and a Ooh. former member of <laughs> choirs and acapella groups at Vassar College, um, which is how I know Maria. And I am currently a senior editor at a website called Racked, which is pretty small. It's all about 
um, sort of shopping and the culture surrounding it. So why we put things on our bodies that we do, um, how we spend our money, sort of the emotional implications of all that stuff. So that's really fun. Uh, and before that, I was at BuzzFeed for a long time, for probably about five years. That was my first job out of college. And sort of in all that time, since I've been working in media and living in New York, um, I have been crafting. It's sort of the thing that's um, been a lodestar for me. It's really been something that's anchored me uh, and just been part of my life since I think I was six years old or something like that. And of course, because I'm also a writer, I started to write about that topic. Um, and I was kind of looking back through my files, which is basically just like copy pasted links on my desktop and realized that the first piece I published about using knitting to um, sort of metabolize anxiety and make sense of the world was in 2012. So it was a really long time ago. Uh, and that kind of directly indirectly gave way to wanting to write more of this sort of piece, uh, which then led to me thinking, you know what, I think I have a lot to say about this. And so I put together a book proposal or like what I thought was a book proposal, but my current agent very helpfully uh, shaped into an actual book proposal. We sent it out, uh, and this was probably in like 2015, and it sold that summer. And so I've been working on this book pretty much ever since then. I did the bulk of the writing in, yeah, that first year in 2015 through 2016, then spent sort of last year editing, putting finishing touches on. And it's basically been locked and loaded since last summer, but I've been sort of living in this like exciting, nauseous, uncomfortable, wonderful in-between stage before it's out in the world. And uh, I'm talking to you guys early March and it's going to be out in a couple weeks now. March 20th is the release date. So that's been really surreal because I've been, I've had this date marked on my calendar for two years now. And now all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I can see it in my GCAL. So I'm sort of, you're catching me at a very uh, tender moment right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that seems like kind of a weird, a weird time to be at that you've been working on this thing for so long and it's like almost out, but not quite. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it too is that I still really like it. Like I actually just recorded the audiobook a couple of weeks ago, which I feel like you guys would appreciate as audio people. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that really cool. Yeah, it was really fun and very professional and I was really happy to be asked to do it because I don't think every author gets to. Um, right. But something I was really nervous about was that I would be rereading this thing. And obviously, you know, I read it like it's it's my book, but I hadn't really read it in one sitting in so long. And I was so worried that I would want to just like edit every sentence, <laughs> like change every word. And I'm someone who does like to sort of edit out loud. Like when I was in the final rounds, I was reading it aloud constantly. But I was like, oh, my God, what's shifted between now and then? Uh, but luckily, there were only maybe like half a dozen moments over the course of this, you know, pretty long book where I was like, eh, you know, I wouldn't do that the same. Um, but that's been another part of it is, is kind of, I finished it when I was not a different person. I mean, there's not a huge difference between 25 and 27, but there kind of is on some level. Like I think that some of my thoughts on certain topics and my relationship to certain people and just my place in the world has evolved since I sort of put the finishing touches on it. So that's been a little interesting too, to sort of figure how do I market this thing that I truly do believe in, but that also is a sort of slightly different time. And, and sort of the answer I've gotten from like editors and friends is just like, you just, you write another book and you sort of <laughs> never keep pace with it. So just as long as it's sort of where you were, then that's accurate and that's fair. And that's a good thing to put in the world. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is 
in the book. It sounds really cool from what I've read about it and the little audio snippet that I did listen to, which was fun because I was like, oh, it's Alana reading. That's cool. Um, But it sounds so cool to like talk about life sort of through the lens of crafting as someone who is a creative person. I really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, it's funny because I feel like I've had three years to hone my elevator pitch and we're two weeks out from publication and I still can't say it in like a concise way. <laughs> um, but basically it's, yeah, it's a book of personal essays about crafting and it's right. I think the way you said it was fantastic. It's the lens. It's sort of how have I used this sort of constant thing that's in my life, sort of low level percolating to really just sort of make sense of it all, to metabolize joy and anxiety and grief and just boredom and the, all the things that kind of make up our everyday lives. So for example, uh, the first piece and the first piece I actually ever wrote of the book is all about, um, I had two friends who died really young. They were both 22. These these were separate incidents. Um, but it was kind of, it was the first time that I'd really experienced that sort of loss, you know, especially as a young person. Um, and really just kind of, it threw me into such a state of feeling like, wow, this world is so inhospitable. It's so crazy. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not a place where you can really like find a lot of joy or where things can last. And I know that sounds melodramatic, but it was kind of ha- where my brain was at at the time. Um, and around then my current best friend who I had sort of just met, um, asked me if I would do a commission, a knitted commission. And I'd never done that before. And it was for her godmother was going to have her first child. And so my friend asked if I would make the baby a sweater and I'd made myself sweaters. I'd made sweaters for my Vassar roommates. Like I was no stranger to making sweaters, but I'd never made anything like that for a baby. Like I'd maybe made a hat, but that's like basically like the easiest thing in the world because there's, (laughs) and I really had to work my way through this sweater because like babies are shaped crazily. Like they have (laughs) huge heads and like neck or shoulders like like it's like making a potato a sweater (laughs) as I made it I really became so enamored of this project and more than that it kind of gave me this sense of hope it really felt like oh I've been mourning the loss of life but at the same time here's someone who's anticipating this new life coming into the world and I really get to be a tiny tiny part of helping greet this baby and helping sort of make this thing that is anticipating her um and actually so there's sort of a fun follow-up up to that because I, you know, made the sweater, turned it over to the mother. She was really grateful. I've got some great, cute pictures of the baby. And now because it's so much time has passed, the baby is four years old and I have been commissioned to make her another sweater. That it's- Oh, that's so nice. Cool. And she has a new little sister who's getting the first sweater. So I feel like <laughs> you get to be part of this family's story and really kind of, I don't know, celebrate them and celebrate life. And it just like, it's probably silly and probably naive to say, like, I didn't realize that life could come into the world the way that it left it. But that was really my first extremely concrete example of it. And crafting was just such a sort of essential part of that, this idea of you can make things the way you want them to be, even if everything else might be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So do you feel like crafting itself has been a way that you kind of process your feelings or your place in the world? Yeah, I think it has. I think, but it's funny because I think the idea of this book too is that hopefully not just crafters will want to read it. Like I think, and you guys talk about this stuff a lot. I think just anyone has like, not anyone, but I think most people have their thing and some, and it's not necessarily like your passion or the thing you're making a ton of money from, or are going to get a lot of glory from, but just this sort of central small, strong, like pulse that like runs underneath your life. And that's kind of what crafting is for me. Like, uh, it's, it's very much this, like, 
it sort of repels metaphor, but also is a metaphor for like everything that I do. Uh, but it's definitely just the thing that calms me down. Honestly, like I'm a, I'm a pretty anxious person. Um, I live in New York city, which is a very sort of stressful, you know, go, go, go city. Um, and I think crafting is just sort of my meditation. It's sort of my way of anchoring myself and just having to deal with the thing that's right in front of me instead of worrying about like, Oh my God, what did I say yesterday? That was so stupid. Like, Oh my God, my week coming up is so stressful. It's like, with crafting and with sort of the fiber arts in particular, like knitting, crochet, embroidery, like you can really only focus on like the thing you are doing in that moment. Like you can't look at your phone. You can't be like, oh my God, I'm working on a sleeve, but I can't wait until I get to the neck hole. Like you just have to do the sleeve. Like, <laughs> and, and again, I think that that could be sort of a twee metaphor, but it also literally just is true. So that's kind of, that's been the thing that's really been a, like a constant for me, certainly in my life. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't know. I like I've done crafting for a really long time and it's definitely one of those things that requires a lot of focus and is like this outlet, but I never necessarily connected it with like a solution to anxiety, not necessarily a solution, but like something that could help with anxiety too. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's funny because obviously this last year and a half has been, I would say, uniquely stressful uh, as sure. Yeah. Um, And in that time, more people than ever in my life have asked me to teach them how to knit. And I think that there is that. And even if they don't know that that's why they're asking and I don't want to like diagnose anybody, I do think that there is this hunger right now to like cement ourselves to something to just feel like, Oh my God, I do not want to deal with Twitter. I don't want to deal with the threat of nuclear war. Like I just want to deal with like thread and fabric and things that are soft and things that are manageable. And like, I've always said this and I say this in the book too, but I've always thought of crafting as a series of tiny problems that you know, you can solve. Like, and even if you mess up and even if it doesn't look like how you want, you know that you're going to be able ultimately to like get to something. And like, it's not the case for the rest of the world. Probably like you, you rarely know that everything is going to work out fine. But I do think that when I'm making something, it kind of imbues me with a tiny bit of that power where it's like, you know what, if I can solve this, I can solve the difficult email. I can have the hard conversation. I can get through the like mound of work I have. Like it's, it's almost like making your bed in the morning. It's sort of like the first step that kind of sets you up for some more success later on. Yeah, I like that because it's kind of less like the results are less dire, sort of, <laughs> um, really- but then it's also like definitely a confidence builder when it goes well. Yeah. And it's really satisfying to make things. Totally. And like from where I sit in my room, like I can look around and see like I made that blanket. I made that sweater. All my yarn is, you know, on my bookshelf in rainbow order because I'm kind of crazy like that. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like I've gotten to make this little corner of the world look the way I want it to. And like, how often can you say that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Yeah. Well, and we've talked a little bit about um, the idea of like control and how because we can't control hardly anything, it's probably better for us to kind of let go of that. But I like the idea of having something that, you know, you can control, but that doesn't necessarily like have like Maria said, like dire consequences, because (laughs) it's nice to have something that you can exercise some degree of control over and like vision over that, you know, is going to be able to be carried out. I guess. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point because right. I think my, my life is just a constant struggle between when should I clutch tightly and when should I let go? And like, I haven't figured that out yet. And if I had Mm -hmm. write a self-help book, that would get me a lot more money. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's also just fun, like straight up, like we can talk about the sort of the mental health benefits and sort of the, the philosophy behind it, but just like 
I genuinely just love crafting so much. Like I love the action. I love how it feels in my fingers. I love teaching people. And that's kind of a new thing. Like I really was quite a solo crafter for a very long time. Like my grandma first taught me, but then I sort of went off on my own and, you know, watched YouTube tutorials and read books. And it was very much like my memories of crafting up through basically when I went to college are just like me in my bedroom at my parents' house, like piecing things together and figuring it all out, which was great and really fun. But once I got to college and certainly after, um, because my first job at BuzzFeed had a lot to do with crafting, like I was helping edit the DIY section at the time. I don't know. I just really kind of found my people and found that there were a lot of people who wanted to become crafters. And I have these sort of sporadic, what I call crafter noons, where I just like invite a bunch of people to like the park and we like drink wine and I either teach people knitting or they do embroidery or like decorate t-shirts, you know, it can be again, really low stakes. And that's been really cool to sort of realize that there's also life beyond just like me and my fiber. Like honestly, like seeing what someone else has made when I've taught them is such a unique joy that is like so far beyond looking at, or I shouldn't say beyond, but it's a different, it hits a different pleasure center than seeing like a sweater I've made myself, for example. Um, mm-hmm. like, oh, this can continue. This is really sort of part of a, like, I don't know, just a, a family or part of a, a timeline that's going to keep going. Well, I've realized that with like anything that I really enjoy or love to do, like as great as it is when you're doing it by yourself, like sharing it with other people is like so exciting because you're like, I love this so much. Like you should love this so much. And there's like this excitement to that. I feel like. No, totally. And I, I yeah. Think- Self getting sort of militant sometimes and have to like walk it back. Where, <laughs> yeah. Where like I'm like, it's actually okay if not everyone wants to learn how to knit. But <laughs> yeah. the one thing that I do chafe against is I constantly hear people being like, oh, I'm just not crafty, or like, oh, I tried once and like I was the worst ever. And like the thing is, is there's actually a really steep learning curve. Like I think that there are certain crafts, like embroidery, I think is something that a lot of people can pick up fairly easily. Um, you know, there's just sort of a lower barrier to entry, but knitting is just freaking hard. Like it, especially because like the first steps of like casting on, getting the stitches onto the needles, like figuring out how to hold the yarn, like these are all not intuitive. And and mm-hmm. I think that adults in particular are really bad at being bad at things. Like we think that, especially like look, I like work in New York media. It's a lot of really smart, really high achieving, like a lot of really cool women, like a lot of people who just like are used to being the best at what they are doing. And if you put them at a table with sticks and string and tell them to like turn it into an object, they just are so panicked, like in a way that children who I've taught do not get panicked. Um, and so I think that a big part of sort of teaching people is letting them feel like it's okay to just like suck at it for a long time. Like that your first attempt will not look like what you want it to. Maybe your second and third won't either, but just like to trust the process a little bit and like realize that after a week or a few days or whatever, like it's, you're going to arrive somewhere that's better. And like, that's a hard thing. That is, I think harder pound for pound than teaching the actual stitches is just the, like, it is okay if your first attempt sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important lesson. And I think crafting is probably a good way to learn it, I guess, because it's, you can see your progress really concretely once yeah. you do make progress. And again, like the stakes are so low and like, I know, right. and I don't want to like disavow the frustration of like, oh my God, this isn't looking like how I want it to. Like I have absolutely cried over knitting, like probably in the last year and I've been doing it for 21 years now. Um, but it is nice to remember that like, okay, I'm really like deep into this problem. And like, often the solution is like a pair of scissors and just like starting. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. I think, like, again, kind of a small gift in a world that like often the answer is not as simple as all that. Right. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Um, 
in re- you're talking about like sharing knitting with other people and realizing that more people want to do it. And um, I don't know, that kind of made me think about how as much as like I feel like a lot like certain individual people really enjoy crafting, there's kind of this idea that crafting is like this bygone sort of thing, especially since like we're in such like a technological part of time and we can create those things and buy those things on our own so like i don't know have you gleaned any like new insights with writing this book and doing all this crafting in regards to like how crafting like fits into the world overall or like to our society and stuff because yeah and i think you asked it in such a great way because often i will say this is this is something that's sort of well known among knitters in particular but i think has started to seep into the public consciousness which is uh the idea of not just for grandmas and so it's right it's, yeah it's kind of, <laughs> and i write about this in the book but other people have written about this too i did not coin this um this idea that like you know you read something in like the wall street journal or like huffington post or whatever and it's like the first sentence is always knitting it's not just for grandmas anymore and like it's literally <laughs> been going on since i've been like cognizant so that's like you know, at this point, like since I've been reading the internet, like 15 years or whatever. Yeah. So I think that this question has kind of always been floated in ways that can be really condescending and really dismissive. Um, and that always kind of like makes me bristle because people have been doing it forever. But to your point, I actually think that there is a connection between the fact that we are so technological and so sort of divorced from real life in some ways. I know I shouldn't say real life because I think the internet is real life. Like that's been my whole career. That's how I've met my people. Um, but this divorce from tactility, I should say that we are not making things in, (laughs) we call it meat space (laughs) kind of ironically. Um, but we're not, you know, that we less and less the product of our labor is not necessarily something that we have this cause and effect for, as you were saying, Maria, that you can see the stitch immediately, that you can do the action and, and, and hold the thing in your hands. So much of what we do now is just like existing in screens is existing in cyberspace. Um, and I think that there's a hunger to get back to this sort of tactility. Um, and I think that's definitely part of it. I also think too, that just we're in a really visual moment. Like, I think that there's a reason that crafting and Instagram and Pinterest and all and Facebook and just wherever people want to be sharing photos and sharing their products of their work, Etsy in particular, like, I think that those help, you know, and, and I'm a little leery because I always tell my students and sort of first time people like, there is a strong chance that you will never ever craft something that looks like how it looks on Instagram. Like a lot of those people have like really nice light and have and like live in Scandinavia and like have been doing this for 30 years. Like it's okay if it doesn't look like that. So don't compare yourself. But I do think that there's a value in saying I made this. And I think that the internet allows you to do that in a way that reaches a lot more people than I don't know, before the internet, when you had to like run around the town square saying I made this, you know, sure, okay. yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> really interesting. real sense of pride. And I think I'm definitely seeing this in the food space as well. Like a lot of my friends are food writers um, and food bloggers. And sometimes that can make me feel terrible where I'm like, oh my God, I made the Instagram famous cookies and they look terrible and they crumbled because whatever. (laughs) I think that there's real joy and real value in, I don't want to say performing because I think that that gets a negative connotation, but in sort of enacting your lifestyle. And I think that again, it's easy to go overboard and to sort of just perform and just want to show people like, I'm doing great. I made this beautiful thing and this beautiful meal. And that means I'm fine. And like, you should feel bad about yourself. Like that's bad. But I think that a lot of people, women in particular, really have loved being able to like put 
these things on display, you know, to say like, look, I have value. I live in the world. Like there is, this exists because I wanted it to. So I think that there's been again, like a hunger for that lately that has been sort of facilitated by these platforms that we work and live on. And also it's just like easier to get patterns and to get information and knowledge now because of the internet. Like I'm obsessed with this one website called Ravelry, which yep. like, and, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Like after <laughs> like instantly is like, yeah, duh. Like, what? <laughs> um, and I think it's been so important for me. Like I've been on it now for like, I've probably been on it for 10 years. Like, I don't think that's inaccurate. Um, and right. And just for the uninitiated Ravelry is like this social network slash pattern database slash like place you can just upload your photos of your projects and find other people and find yarn. It's like incredible. And it really like, it changed my life. It just connected me with all these people who were doing what I loved to do. Um, and, uh, like just free patterns and ways to use yarn that I had no idea what to do with. And like, I, again, like that was possible when people were sharing knowledge more orally and books have always existed. And like, I still buy so many pattern books because I still think it's the best way to kind of communicate that knowledge. But I think the internet really changed things for the better when it comes to crafting. So I'm like excited to see what happens next. And I, I hope that it only continues upward because obviously it's so hard to support independent publishing and these sort of smaller niche spaces right now. But I don't know. I think that we're in a good moment that we can capitalize on if we really like put our minds to it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So you said that your grandma taught you to knit. Is that kind of how you started in crafting? Is that how you got started? Uh, I mean, it's kind of how I got started, like in anything, because I learned mm -hmm. when I was six and I don't think I like learned much before that. I've actually always tried to trace if I learned to read or I learned to knit first. Like I can't quite figure out the chronology. <laughs> Definitely like that. You know, it was like day one, like these are the things. Um, so yeah. So my grandma who passed away maybe two or three years ago, and that was kind of part of the catalyst of writing this book. Um, she taught me and really kind of taught me the basics. And she's always been just a huge crafter, like knitter, crocheter, uh, sewer, sewist. A lot of people like to go by because sewer looks like sewer if you try and spell it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so she taught me and it, I was just like off to the races. And my aunt Kathleen, who's her daughter, my mom's sister, uh, was also has always been really crafty and taught me and my little sister about beading and jewelry making. And we would make a lot of clay things. We called them out of like polymer clay. Um, and so it's just always been part of my life. And then, yeah, as I got older, I really decided I wanted to get a lot better at knitting. Like I actually had like one specific summer where I was unemployed and like later realized it was like the first time I ever experienced depression. Cause I just like, didn't want to get out of bed and was feeling really kind of listless. Um, but I was just like, you know what, the one thing I can do is just like get a lot better at this one low stakes thing. And so that was when I signed up for Ravelry and that was when I got all these books and really just decided to become great at knitting. Like I had like a month, just like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and that was kind of it. That was when it was really like, so yeah, that was probably about 10 years ago. And that was when I was just like, this is my thing. Like, I'm going to just be doing this forever. I'm going to spend my money on this. I'm going to spend my time on this. Like literally behind me right now is probably like $2,000 I've spent on yarn. <laughs> like it's like a drug habit basically, but like <laughs> productive one. <laughs> it is productive. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> it's like nice to have it. something where you can make something, produce something. Yeah. Even if no one asks for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it is really nice to give as gifts, too. I yeah, think even if people aren't asking for it, I think they'd probably enjoy the handmade gifts. Yeah, I think so. And, like, that's definitely been part of this, too, is even teaching other people how to make gifts. Like, my boyfriend is, like, very much, like, 
a dude. Like he's a music editor and like, you know, is cool. And like, I don't know, he's not the kind of dude, not to say that that's, you know, at odds with crafting, but he's not the type you would think of as a crafter. Uh, and then maybe a month or two ago, he was like, how do you make the word circles? And I was like, what, <laughs> what do you mean, Brendan? What are you talking about? He's like, no, you know, when you put the words in the circles and I was like, oh, you mean embroidery. Like, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to do that for a gift. And I was like, okay, like, let's do it. And I, we sat down and I showed him how to do it, like stretch the fabric in the hoop and, you know, threaded the needle, threading the needle is always the hardest part. And he is so good at it. And he made these lovely little pieces, one for like a friend of ours who had gotten married, um, one for his other friends who like, it was their anniversary. And I was just so pleased that like, he saw me doing this thing and wanted to make a gift for someone else. Like that just felt like the biggest gift of all to be really cheesy. Like (laughs) yeah, all the value in it and was like, I want to learn to do that to make other people happy. And that, that felt really cool. So I don't know if his embroidery career is going to like continue, but (laughs) I was very pleased to have a student who recognized sort of the value like that. (laughs) Yeah. That's really cool. cool. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of value in, crafting even if you do not intend on continuing your crafting career i think sometimes we get caught up in you know the people who look like they're doing it really professionally and their stuff looks really nice and we feel like we have to like to be a real knitter we have to like make the beautiful sweaters and be able to sell them but like that's not true no you're totally right i think that's a great point like I am not often a, like it's the journey rather than the destination person. Like I, I like the destination. Like I like to have <laughs> something, but I'm different when it comes to crafting. Like I, I love just the act of it. And often I'm actually writing a piece about this for um, a magazine that I love. And it's all about how I finished this blanket that um, had taken me like four years because I just like kept stopping, you know, cause it's just boring. And it was like rounded mm-hmm. circles would take longer and longer each time. Um, but I really missed it when I was done. And I felt the same way with the book where sort of being out of that space of a work in progress can feel kind of lonely or kind of isolating. Like I loved being in the middle of these projects. Like I loved the action of just adding a stitch, adding a sentence, rearranging things like, like being inside of something can feel really, really fulfilling. And, and not to say that when it's done, it's a disappointment or it's not fulfilling, but it's just, you're sort of on the outside of it. Whereas before you were on the inside. And I think anyone can get that, whether they're yeah making a blanket or a book or whether they're making a washcloth or like a doll dress or I don't know, whatever small, like silly thing that you're just like trying to make in the moment. I think that that is sort of available to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's also like this focus on if we're going to start doing something, it needs to like we need to have like a good reason for it or it needs to like contribute to something else that's going to like affect our lives later on. There's like this long-term focus. And I think crafting too can just be like, even if you just do it once, like it's again, Mm -hmm. like you said, it's just like fun. It's a fun thing to do. And like, we need more of that in our lives as well. Just like fun things. Yeah, totally. No, I think that's a great point. So like, I feel like to anyone listening, like just try it, you know, like, and if it's not crafting, like maybe it's running, maybe it's singing in a choir, maybe it's fishing. Like, I think everyone kind of has just like a thing that will help them just like make a little more sense of the world and just like feels freaking good. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. it's a matter yeah. of just finding it and not feeling like it owes you anything that can really just make your life so much better. For yeah, sure. Definitely. So what is your relationship to, to writing then? Do you feel like writing is also another one of your things? How is that different from your relationship to crafting or similar? That's a great question because I mean, I've been making my living doing it ever since I graduated, which I feel really fortunate for. Like there are not a lot of people who can say the same thing, 
but I think it does mean that it lives somewhere differently. Uh, it, it, it feels like it's not just for pleasure, even though I do write for pleasure, it feels more like a tool, if that makes sense. Like it feels like this is a skill that I have that I am honing in the service of getting somewhere, you know, like I want to write more books. I want to be, you know, the best editor I can be. I want to elevate voices. Like, like it all feels like it's in the service of something that's a little more professional that is tied to money, frankly. Like I want to be paid to do what I like in this capacity. Whereas with crafting, it's like every now and then I'll sell things. Like, you know, I, I sell at a little store down the road and like some of the proceeds go to Planned Parenthood. Like I like to do some commissions around the holidays, but it's like, whenever anyone's like, Oh my God, would you try and do this full time? The answer is like, absolutely no. I wouldn't <laughs> want to kind of burden it with that. And I think, yeah, writing has become burdened. Like, again, I'm so happy to be doing this and I can't think of a different line of work I would rather be in, but it does feel more freighted. And it does feel like when I, when, when there are times of sort of lying fallow, when I'm not writing or when I'm not feeling creative, there's this certain weight and this certain anxiety and paralysis that doesn't exist when I'm not crafting, if that makes sense. Like when I'm not writing, it feels like not only is this a ding on me professionally, like I'm not advancing myself at the rate I should be. My peers are surpassing me, whatever. It also feels like, well, what's wrong with me? You love this. Like, why can't you do it? Like, like it's like a thing that like, I'm not happy because I'm not writing. And with crafting, it's just like, when I'm in the mood to craft, I craft. And when I'm not in the mood to craft, I don't craft. And it doesn't feel like it sort of mutates and is like hovering over my shoulder, like this big monster. Mm -hmm. Um, this all sounds like I'm being very negative about writing and I don't want to be because like at the end of the day, writing is just my, like everything. It's my alpha and omega. Like it just is the thing that has given me meaning and has given me sort of a way of articulating. And I don't even think I would like crafting as much if I weren't a writer. Like that sounds crazy to say, but I think that being able to sort of articulate crafting and find out where it fits in my life has been part of what's made me like crafting so much. Like I'm obviously a very verbal person, um, but I definitely have a more complicated relationship to writing. And that's something I'm sort of interested in exploring over these next few years of my career is, you know, as I've become sort of a full-time editor, like my job is not writing any longer. Um, it almost has given me more space kind of paradoxically to figure out like what my voice is and what I would want my next big project to be and who I want to be writing for. So that's been really cool. And I think that that's been a really nice shift over the last like year or two is helping other people tell their stories has actually made me feel a lot more sort of calm about the times when I'm not like super intent on telling my own. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that makes sense in regards to that. Um, I know, well, you, you talked about how with writing, it almost feels you put pressure on yourself. Like if you're not doing it with crafting, you don't. Um, how do you like find a balance between doing your writing and doing writing for pleasure and then crafting in your life? Like, have there been tools that you've used to kind of achieve a certain balance with that? That's a great question, actually. So I, this is going to make me sound like kind of like a freak, but maybe six months ago, I started tracking everything in my life, like not in a super like detailed or involved way, but it started because I realized I'd never made a budget for myself, like a money budget where like, I always knew like I had a little bit more coming in than was going out. So like everything was fine, but I was like, you're 27, you're a grown up. You really need to take stock of this. <laughs> and so I started writing down every dollar I spent and sort of would like, and I did this in like a phone note. Like I still do, this is six months later. I still do it on like a phone note on my like iPhone. Um, every week I make a new note. And then it sort of expanded where I started tracking, okay, how many alcoholic drinks am I having? How much water am I drinking? And then I started tracking activities too. So it was like, 
did you write today? And I do a little pencil emoji. Did you craft today? And I do a little scissors emoji. And that has been so helpful in terms of like, I don't even really try and hit goals per se, like maybe with the water and the drinking and the money. Yes. But when it comes to the hobbies, not so much, it's actually been more interesting to see sort of what are these trends that I get in. Like I'll have a whole week of just like reading voraciously and I'll finish three books and blah, blah, blah. Or I'll have a week where it's like, oh yeah, I'm kind of in the zone writing wise. And I like to be able to look back and sort of trace those things and be like, oh, that's where you were in October, or that's where you were in February. Um, and it's helped me be just more thoughtful. I think about how I spend my time where like, I'm always happy to do any one of those things or none of those things. And I'm trying to sort of let myself get away with quote unquote, like not being productive and not doing these sort of like wholesome activities constantly. But I really like being able to look back over six months of data and just sort of say, look like that you were really happy while you were doing that. So maybe it's time to try and do it a little bit more or, Hey, like it seems like when you read every day on the subway, you have less time for knitting. That's fine. But just like, you know, know that that's where that comes in. So it's been interesting to just kind of even like over these past few months, like take stock of where I'm at. Um, I definitely feel like this year I've changed more or at least grown up more than I have in like the past five years or something. It's just been a matter of like checking in with myself and seeing what I want and seeing sort of where these balances do lie and what I want to be doing more of and what I want to be doing less of. And like, I've decided today is a writing day. So after I get off with you guys, I'm going to like sit down at my computer and just, you know, take an hour or two and see what comes. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> nice. Cool. Yeah. Scheduling things in has been big and that's also a really boring thing. Like I've started, sorry, I've like talked about my GCAL like three times already, which is <laughs> that's so okay. boring. My, like, it's a useful tool. No, my eight-year-old self would be like kicking me just like, oh my God, you're so boring. <laughs> but yeah, I've actually found that even like scheduling in like the way that I do, like, I mean, I'm also boring and schedule drinks with friends now on my Google calendar, but like scheduling <laughs> in stuff for myself where it's like, oh, you're going to write from one to three, or like you are going to go home and make dinner tonight. And like, that's the same as a plan you would make with a friend. Um, that's been really helpful just to sort of carve out some space for myself. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think that can be useful. Um, well, one, like you said, tracking and just having the awareness of what you're actually spending your time on because it's easy to kind of lose track of those things in the moment and then also scheduling time for yourself because yeah. sometimes it's harder to prioritize those things that you know are going to make you feel good <laughs> but you don't have any outside like deadlines or people I, waiting for you. Right. And like, but. right. Like I live alone, you know, like I live in New York city, like no one's really checking in on me, here, you know? And so I've almost found that I've had to be my own babysitter to some degree is just like, yeah, you could eat cookie dough for every meal and like <laughs> you could get super drunk and like roll into work hungover. But like the only person you're harming there is yourself. Like it, you will mm -hmm. definitely feel much better if you like eat some kale and like go to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what what was it like writing a book for you? Do you have any oh my God, I love thoughts on your writing process or how you found time to write? Yeah, it's kind of wild because looking back on it, I'm like, how the hell did I do that? Like <laughs> time to write this like 500 word article. You know what I mean? And I'm like, how did I do that? But I think I just, first of all, just really wanted it to exist. And I already, and, and when I sold the proposal, I'd already written sort of the three biggest pieces, I would say, like I, two had already actually been published and I then expanded them a lot. And one was new. Um, but I had to, as part of my outline, like 
really write what I thought every other piece would be. And that like, like just, you know, sort of a blurb about what each one, and it actually kind of looking back, some stuff changed. And I actually wrote whole pieces that eventually me and my editor decided to cut, but I actually did have a pretty firm sense of just what points I wanted to hit. Like I wanted to hit anxiety. I wanted to hit grief. I wanted to hit joy. I wanted to hit boredom. Like the, the pieces aren't maybe that neatly defined, but I think that you could kind of arguably break them down by emotion. Um, and I have a lot of emotions and I'm very happy <laughs> for them. So that gave it sort of a natural propellant. Like I wasn't really worried about having enough to fill it. What am I going to write next? Like it was more a matter of sort of how do we shape this in a way that feels useful for other people. Um, and I, it's funny cause I can't even totally remember my process, but I think I wrote before work a fair amount. I write in spurts. I am not someone who's one of those, like, like I have a great friend who actually has a book coming out next week, which is awesome. Um, it's called never have I ever, Oh no, it's called, would you rather her first book was called never have I ever. And her name is Katie Haney and she's great. Um, anyway, but she is such a disciplined writer where she wakes up and she writes, you know, for an hour, two hours, whatever in the morning, and then does whatever she needs to do. And I've always been so in awe of her and it's taken until about now to realize that I'm just not that way. Like I am not someone who can write, you know, a thousand words every day or 750 words every day. I'm someone who maybe twice a week can sit down and bang out 1500, 2000. And it feels more cohesive to me. Like I just, I don't know. I get waylaid. I get sort of impatient. I'm just not an every morning type of writer. And for a while I thought that that meant I wasn't a real writer. And then it's like, frick that like everyone is a real writer who decides that they, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Another thing that was really helpful was that I did take time off from work while I was working on it. Um, when I was at Buzzfeed, they had a really generous book leave policy. So I took a full month off and just like lived in this like mansion in Rhode Island that some people let me like house sit for them on, which was really nice of them. Cool. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I shout out the Millettes. Um, and so I just like was in this house by myself for a month and I went pretty crazy. Like I, at one point found myself like I was like on the beach in my fur coat in February with like a glass of Chardonnay. And I was like, this is gray garden shit. Like this is, <laughs> you have snapped. Um, but I loved that. Like I loved just the discipline of it. I loved having all this time. I like didn't plan on doing this, but I just completely was off social media the whole time. Like I didn't know what was going on in the world at all. Um, I just really loved that. And I don't think I could do that full time. Like I really don't think that I'm someone who would be behooved by like, this hermit lifestyle of like never seeing other people, but knowing that I had this concrete timeline, this one month and that I had to get a certain amount done was really helpful. I really like, I like that was one of the best months of my life was just getting to kind of hunker down and really focus on this project. Mm -hmm. That's really great that you could do that. Yeah. It sounds very useful. Yeah. I felt really grateful for it. And it also was just nice. And I felt this way at my current employer too. I've been really lucky to have two employers that really took seriously what I was doing and really kind of gave me the time and space and flexibility to figure it out. Um, cause again, I know that not everyone has that luxury and it's a real privilege and it's a privilege to even like be in this industry where I know people who have published books before. And like, I knew my agent before we even agreed to work together because she was also a crafter. And like, you know, you are like fortunate when you are sort of set up in these spaces. And I know that there are such insanely talented people who don't have those luxuries, who are living elsewhere, who maybe don't have access to these same kind of circles. Um, and I try to be really cognizant of that when I, you know, commission people to publish. And when I sort of think about who are we giving time and space to that, like, I am like, a white upper middle class woman who like went to Vassar and like did the Columbia publishing course and lives in New York and works in media. Like I am very uniquely well positioned for sort of success in this realm. And that doesn't like mean anything, you know, it, it, it it's definitely something that I am super, super lucky to have and should be aware of that luck. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. 
So something that Anna and I also have talked about several times on here is journaling, because we're both journalists. We both like to process our feelings and experiences through journaling. Is that something that you do ever? No, I'm like the no. worst journaler. I oh, I have so many nice notebooks. I probably have like 20 beautiful, <laughs> expensive notebooks with like three pages scribbled in each of them. But it's just like, <laughs> it, it's almost, I think, the same muscle as the writing everyday thing where I like just so prefer to write in these like cohesive chunks of like, I'm doing an essay or like I'm doing a blog post rather than just sort of like getting sentences out. And I wonder if that's going to change as I sort of, again, like hone my practice and get older and whatever, but it's just never really like hit my pleasure centers. Like it's just always Mm -hmm. more of a chore than something that helps me unpack stuff. But I also think, again, I am a really verbal person. Like I love, like I talk to my mom on the phone constantly. I have a great therapist. Me and my best friend talk constantly. I think that that's almost my form of journaling in some ways is all these chats, all these sort of, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I literally, (laughs) it's okay. (laughs) I'm like actually furious right now because I keep quitting message and saying, don't do that. (laughs) And then it just keeps dinging. It's that happened now. to my yoga teacher during a class too. Oh, that's she like oh, kept turning no. it off, but it kept dinging during the that's class. Way worse. Um, <laughs> is there like no way I can? <laughs> it's like haunting me. Oh. <laughs> anyway, there's like no way I can. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, we definitely have some episodes where there's like a phone ringing in yeah. the background. Yeah, when we record <laughs> in my house and we still have a landline, the phone rings yeah. all the time, and yeah. Sort of retro. Connect you guys to um. So I live in a wonderful home where my landlords live below me, and they have an eight-year-old. And then there's a gorgeous family that lives above me, and they have another eight-year-old, and then I want to say a two-year-old or like one and a half-year-old. And so I'm like, who are wonderful, and they're not noisy, but there's often like rambunctious noises. So I'm glad that that's mm-hmm. like seeping in here. But it's nice. It actually like makes me really happy to live in a house where there's like life going on around me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I was actually, I, what I was going to say about journaling is that um, one of my dearest friends and probably like most compatible professional like soulmate uh, is this wonderful woman named Rachel Wilkerson Miller, and she still works at BuzzFeed. She's a senior editor, and she is such an avowed journaler. Um, and I just want to shout her out because she's just sort of the person who I like have such a creative connection with. And I think we sort of metabolize the world in similar ways, even though she is a journaler and she's way more sort of like put together than I am. Um, and she wrote this great book all about dot journaling and how she, um, kind of just like, yeah, makes sense of the world through dot journaling almost in the same way that I make sense of the world through, uh, crafting. So definitely check that out. She's just like everything she writes for Buzzfeed is like so calming and wonderful and like makes you think you can have like a more beautiful life than you (laughs) having up till this point. So yeah, she's just like the best. And she always makes me want to be a journaler. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm just a hoarder of beautiful notebooks. (laughs) Well, that's I'm okay like, too. Yeah, I'm like glad that you point that out though, because I don't think it's right for everyone. I don't know. We talk about it so much, and we're like, "Oh, you should go journal. It's the best no, thing." Totally. But, but I think it's good to acknowledge that like not everything works for everyone. And I think, like, I like how you talk about vocalizing to people because some people like hate vocalizing too. But for yeah. you, it works really well. And so, I think it's a really good thing to acknowledge that we need to find something that that is a way that we can process things, but it does not have to be the same thing for everyone. And I actually think back to your earlier question, Maria, about writing, I think that might be part of it. And again, I think that there are plenty of full-time writers who journal. It's not that, but I think for me, it can feel a little like busman's holiday sometimes where it's like, Mm -hmm. I spend all day long 
thinking about words and rearranging words and swimming around in words that sometimes I like to have these totally nonverbal ways of decompressing. Um, something else I've actually been doing only in the past couple of weeks, but I've been obsessed with it as I've been learning Japanese and like, it's so interesting. And I, you know, I'm doing like Duolingo. I'm listening to this podcast. That's really interesting called bilingual news where, uh, the woman mostly speaks Japanese and the man mostly speaks English and they're just having conversations, but you can really pick up a lot hmm. of context and that's like, cool. it's going to, t- yeah. so, I mean, literally I can say truly nothing. Like I can count to four and I can say my <laughs> Alana and like, I've been watching this uh, Japanese reality show called Terrace House that I'm obsessed with. And like, so I can ask if like something's a date because, you know, that's all. (laughs) But it's been really interesting, even sort of learning this new, uh, I guess it's not so much an alphabet so much as it is um, these symbols, but sort of learning this new way of expressing and figuring out how stuff fits together and sort of doing the puzzle of it all is really kind of making me excited about language in a way that I haven't been in a while, or at least that I haven't put sort of concrete thought to in a while. I think I've gotten obviously very used to writing in English, thinking in English, um, just sort of thinking that this is the only way. And it's been really interesting to just sort of have a glimpse at sort of how, you know, other people talk and other people think and other people put their sentences together. So that's just been like a really fun sort of dorky activity I've been doing like in the mornings. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's yeah, really that's cool. cool. Yeah. I mean, literally you could check in with me in a week and I'd be like, what do you mean? Never mind, I quit. <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of I don't know. It's it's definitely something I want to stick with for right now. I like would like to take a class. Yeah. But again, you don't have to like finish yeah. all the things yeah. that you start. And I think that's good to acknowledge. Exactly. I'm finding real joy in the in the journey. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's worthwhile in itself. Yeah, totally. Um I, okay, I have one quick question. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like a two-sided question. But if you had to pick, what is your favorite part of both the, like your crafting process and your writing process? I think it's, oh, I actually do have an answer to this. I think it's the first moment where what you've started has turned into something real. And that's not the sure. ending. Okay. And it's not even the part where you could tell anyone else about it. But like with knitting, it's very obvious. It's very much like, when you cast on and when you start to knit, it just like looks stupid for so long. Like it's just Mm -hmm. really anemic. It's really like scraggly. Like you don't think it will ever look like anything. And then maybe like a couple inches in, you're just like, Oh yeah, that's totally like the brim of a hat. That's totally the base of a sweater. And with writing, I think the same thing happens where you're sort of like, you know, you have a thought and you're writing towards something but it's not going to make sense to anyone but you, or it doesn't feel useful yet. And then all of a sudden you sort of just like arrive at that moment where it feels like it's all going to come together. And there's still a ton of work to do after both of those moments. That's the thing is it's almost the beginning of the beginning. Like you've had the sort of, you've done the pre-work and now you're really in the work of it all. And I really love that. And I feel like there's such a confidence that comes in that moment where it's just like, hell yeah, I'm going to continue this to the end because, because I am, because I found the thing that's worthwhile. Um, I just, oh, I love that moment so much. You're like making me really excited to sit down and like knit. And- oh, good. <laughs> That's awesome. I really like that answer though. Yeah. I don't know. I guess yeah. I haven't really ever thought about it in that, in those terms, but like, I can like strongly identify with that. Like when you say that too. So yeah. Yeah. I think that people who don't knit or write or whatever can identify that moment in their own lives too. I think that there it really is a lot of sort of parallels between this and physical activity or this and language or teaching or whatever. Like there, I think that a lot of people could recognize that moment for themselves. For sure. Yeah. So one of the things we like to ask our guests at the end of the episode is 
about their relationship to our never wear boring socks philosophy. <laughs> and what we mean by never wear boring socks is basically doing what we can in our everyday lives to make the most of situations. Oh. So we could wear boring socks, but why not if you have the option to wear exciting socks and make your life a little more joyful or interesting? Is that something that resonates with you? Oh my God, that's so wild. In I, your mean, life? I feel like nobody like makes sweaters who's like utilitarian and just trying to get through the day. You know, like it's mm -hmm. inherently like a joyful kind of frivolous, but no, actually frivolous isn't the right word. It's maybe it is, but frivolous in a good way. Frivolous where you are adding value through frivolity. Like you are making your life a little bit better. You're choosing to make it look the way you want it to. Um, and frankly, I have to tell you guys, knitting socks is my all time favorite thing to knit. Like, I think they're so fun. I don't know, Anna, if you've ever knitted socks before, but they are sort of an, they're sort of an engineering marvel where, you know, with knitting, most of you're just knitting like in one direction, but with socks, you actually have to make sort of the hinge at the heel and then start knitting completely perpendicularly to where you were before. And so there's actually some math involved and it's really fun and really daunting. And like, it's the easiest thing in the world to screw up. Like, again, I've been knitting for 20 years <laughs> and I still routinely mess up socks but I don't know. And they're just so small and portable. And it's really clear that what you're knitting is a sock. So if someone like sees you doing it on the subway, it's like, oh yeah, you're like knitting this iconic thing. Um, so I don't know. And again, like no one who knits socks is doing it because they're just trying to like get through the day. Like it's literally the most like expensive, long, inconvenient process to get something you could like <laughs> buy anywhere. But I'm so happy. I have like five pairs of hand knit socks in my drawer right now. <laughs> That's so nice. Yeah, I've never tried to make socks. I am really intimidated by the process and all the extra needles. Yeah, you, <laughs> you crocheted me socks. Well, I know, Maria. I crocheted some socks for Anna yeah. once. It's cute. Were they Which thick? are quite nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were like thick and chunky. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's thick boot socks. Ugh. I know, I love yeah. crochet. I feel like I haven't given crochet enough like of a shout out on this. Like crochet is my definitely my like second love. Like I learned to do it after knitting, but like it's just so structural and so cool. And you can definitely like change your direction as you go in a way that you can't with knitting. I think they all kind of serve their own purpose. Yeah. That's what I like about crocheting. You can kind of make it up as you're going along. Yeah. You don't have to plan everything out so much in advance. Totally. It's very cool. <laughs> and then we also like to ask our guests if they have any recommendations. So do you have any recommendations for anything that you've been into recently that could be books or music or movies or food or I am gonna crafting that, things? That show that I was just talking about, Terrace House, it's like the only thing I want to talk about lately. Um, uh -huh. It is this incredibly soothing Japanese reality show um, where six people, three men, three women are just like sent to live in a house together and like, you know hijinks ensue but it is everyone is so polite and so kind and it's very slow moving like nothing really happens like I, I've been watching probably for like 70 episodes now and I think there's been like three kisses you know it's like almost <laughs> sort of like American reality tv um and I really like it just as this sort of like soothing meditative almost like hypnotic thing like it's really nice before bed like I can watch one episode and then I fall asleep so definitely check that out if you're like interested in just sort of like calm pleasant tv where people are like very kind to each other um cool what else uh oh I've been really obsessed with this one author lately um and I'm probably gonna butcher her name but I believe it's Otessa, Otessa Moshfig um m-o-s-s-f-e-g-h and she wrote this really rad book of short stories that my boyfriend was super into called Homesick for Another World and I'm like halfway through that right now 
And it's just like weird and grotesque, but really funny and really interesting. And she wrote this novel called Eileen that came out maybe 2016. And I just like tore through that. I read it in like maybe two sittings. It's kind of nothing happens in that book either. It's it's this girl who is just really unhappy. She works at a prison for children and like wants to run away from home. And that's the whole novel. But like the way it's rendered is just so wicked and slow burn and interesting. And it just like made me so excited about what can be done with fiction because I'm a nonfiction writer, but like been starting to kind of think about what other spaces do I want to get into? And it's just been making me excited about words in a way that I have not been in a long time. So those things, Terrace House and Otessa Moshvig. <laughs> cool. cool. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you on the internet and buy your book oh yeah buy it. i'm pretty easy to find on the internet i tweet pretty much incessantly um and my handle is <laughs> my first name it's just a l a n n a um and then if you search the curse of the boyfriend sweater on amazon it is right there <laughs> very cool and we'll put links in the show notes awesome. to those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah i have a website too but it's mostly just like it's it's alanaoken.xyz because i couldn't get .com <laughs> <laughs> I like XYZ. It's kind of more fun. I also I had the choice between Alana Oaken dot party, Alana Oaken dot camp, and Alana Oaken dot XYZ. And my agent was like, okay, I have a I have a vote. Like <laughs> I still buy Alana Party. <laughs> yeah. That would be a very different vibe. Exactly. <laughs> I like it though. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alana. Yeah, thank you for coming. For conversation. Yeah. And I'm excited to read your book when it comes out. Yeah. So much. Yeah. March 20th. Keep an eye out. <laughs> yes. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening this week. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation with Alana as much as we loved having it. Tune in next week for a conversation about creative inspiration and where it comes from. What do we think about it? We'll let you know. I'm excited. Me too. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And please leave us a review on iTunes. You can find show notes for this episode at mariacatherine.com slash podcast slash 030. And Catherine is spelled K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E. Please get in touch with us. We'd really love to hear from you. Our email is neverwearboringsocks at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at neverwearboringsocks and on Twitter at noboringsocks. Many thanks to Ben Ramsey, the cheese beast, for being our audio editor and to him and Martha Barnard for helping us with the music. And a huge thank you to Alana for joining us for this week's episode. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. And until next time, never wear boring socks.